All right, good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. Um, and if you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61, as we'll be uh, wrapping up our uh, ser- Easter sermon series, as we have been looking at Isaiah and how Isaiah tells us about uh, the suffering servant. And this morning, we're going to see how he's exalted as the anointed servant and ushers in a completely new kingdom, uh, a way in which God's justice and grace and redemption are experienced in, in ways that uh, we just don't have the capacity to make happen in and of our own strength. And so as you're turning there this morning, I do have a question for you. Um, what, what good news have you heard recently? Maybe it was a, you, you got a job or you got a house or you got into a school or you, something good happened, right? And, and you got the news of it. And how did you feel in the moment when you heard the good news? Right? You, you were excited. It was an exciting thing. I remember one time when I was, uh, I needed a third job. And, uh, and, and I thought that $8 an hour was going to transform my life, right? And this was back in the day. I think this was pre-internet, actually, uh, just to put it into some sort of historical perspective. Uh, and so we still had landlines, because I remember waiting for the phone call, uh, and UPS called and said, I got the job. I was so excited. It was with some of the best news I'd heard until I showed up at 11 o'clock one night off of Fulton Industrial Boulevard and discovered what that $8 an hour was going to exact from me. And I decided after a couple of months, it wasn't as life-changing as I thought, nor was it worth it. And so the good news, that exciting moment had faded pretty quickly when the reality of the circumstance came in, right? Which, if you think about it, is like all good news. In some respects, even the good news of the gospel, you think about when, for those of you who uh, accepted Christ in some sort of, uh, you know, kind of amazing way, road to Damascus type experience, you were incredibly zealous for the things of the gospel, right? It was a season in which you, you were just hungering, you were reading the Bible, you were listening to sermons, you were, you just almost couldn't get enough. And then the daily grind The truth of Ecclesiastes crept in like a dark mist. And everything was not yet perfected. And everybody didn't quite behave according to the same rules. And in fact, you may have seen behind the curtain and discovered that people who lead churches are, wait a minute, sinners too. With egos and baggage and problems and issues. And so the good news of the gospel may be lost some of its luster. Well, this is, I think, part of the gift of both Christmas and Easter, that it is to the church. Now, for those of you like, who think it is slightly strange that we take time to focus on these things, well, this is actually one of the reasons so that we would be reminded of the goodness of Christ, which we are hopefully every single week. But there is just something about Easter, is it not? And that is a a common grace of God that we are willing to gather together to hear this story one more time uh, and and even hear it in ways that that can be encouraging. We we dress a little bit different. Many of you commented uh, that you're so excited. In fact, Phil Harrington took a picture. If it shows up somewhere, I want to know. I did not sign a release. I'm probably going to sue it. (laughs) I can't. I'm a Christian, right? First Corinthians. You can't do that. That was sarcasm for those who might not know. I'm not going to do that. Uh, and so, and so, and it's springtime, and life is just, it's abundant. So there's this unique kind of moment uh, that allows us to maybe see it a little clearer and maybe again taste afresh of really how good this news is. I had an opportunity yesterday um, with my family, so we, we did celebrated uh, the Easter meal aspect of things yesterday. And it wasn't lost on me how much redemption was in that meal. And you don't know, because maybe you don't know my family history, but for my son to to want to gather with his family after all we've been through, and to see my pregnant daughter-in-law look like she swallowed the turkey, uh, and... And, and, kept <laughs> and was perfectly fine with people touching her little belly and that, that granddaughter of mine that's in there. Uh, and, and so um, it, that was beautiful. And then my, my, my niece, Nikki, who, again, you don't know her story, but man, it was rough. And she has married a great man who loves her 
in a, in a way that I can't even begin to understand because Nikki's crazy. And <laughs> all the best sense that that word means, like she's fun crazy, right? And she is a dynamo of a human being. And like he said, he said, she's, she's always coming up with something. I can't hide from her. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so, but he loves her children, her children who have been through so much, able to have so much joy. Uh, Susan's parents who've been through so much, her father who is uh, battling hearing issues and vision issues and po possibly memory issues, to be able to sit on the couch and just enjoy a conversation with him about hockey, which I hate. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, never mind. Uh, and so um, it, it just was a joy to be able to gather with these people and so much peace to be in such a common meal. And so yesterday I had a little chance to taste deeper yet again of the good news. And I hope you get to too, maybe today, maybe yesterday, maybe sometime this week, that the good news of the gospel, even though it's not yet perfected, and even though we still live in this very fallen and broken world, and even though we ourselves come up so short so often, I've been thinking about losing weight, but it's not doing anything. So I'm actually going to have to do something at some point, right? I mean, that's just what we do. I, I mean, the plan's been there. It's, it looks really good on paper. It's going to be amazing when it comes into practice. It's, there's just a gap right now. And so, um, and so, so we, we get that the plan has not yet been worked out in full. And we're tasting only little bits of it along the way, like breadcrumbs pointing to the new promised land. So that's our, my prayer for us this morning. So in fact, I'm going to pause and pray before we jump into Isaiah 61. And, uh, and so if you would, let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you that you gather with us. Thank you that you, you choose to place such amazing glory in such earthen vessels as us. That you are constantly calling us to come and see the good things that are unfolding. May we be excited afresh by the gospel, the resurrection, the call for us to be architects and ambassadors of reconciliation, the, that we would get excited that you say, come join me in this unfolding gracious and just kingdom that will transform everything. Thank you, Lord, that you love us that much. In Christ's name, amen. All right, as we uh, step into Isaiah 61, let me say just a couple of things. We want to pay attention to who is speaking and to whom. That ends up mattering a whole lot to how we interpret what's being said. And the New Testament, Luke chapter 4 in particular, is going to help us understand some of what's being said, right? And so <clears throat> as we look at Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, we have to remember that all that we've dealt with came, is actually the backdrop for this. So Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, that fourth suffering servant song is coming to fruition here, but he's no longer going to be the suffering servant. He will be the anointed servant. Many theologians call this the fifth suffering servant song, but it's interesting, there's no suffering in this song. And it is a song, after all. Um, and so it's, it's broken up into different parts with different people speaking. So this first portion is the anointed servant speaking of the good news that comes with the resurrection. So if you would, uh, give your attention to the reading of God's word. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." Now, you may say, well, how do we know this is Jesus talking and not just Isaiah? Or how do we know it's not just some representative of Israel? Well, 
Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, is one of the first times that Jesus goes and preaches in a local synagogue, which was his practice. And so how it would look in the local synagogue, kind of different than what we have here, is they would have had uh, scrolls that people would read uh, and, and have some comments that would be made, but it was a more communal effort, more involved effort. And so Jesus uh, had some recognition at this point, but not a lot, but he takes and pulls the scroll out, and they were at Isaiah 61. And he reads some of these verses, and he rolls the scroll up, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's me. And the response at first is, oh, that's old Joseph's boy. Ain't he cute? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. That sounds really good to us. And what they were hearing was that he had come to actually, because you got to remember in Jesus' day, the people of God, Israel, is still in exile. They are under the, the tyranny, the oppression of Rome, right? Which was not at that time as bad as it would become and as bad as it had been. It wasn't terrible at that moment. But they didn't want to be under anyone's rule and tyranny. They wanted to be able to make the decisions for themselves as a nation, Okay, So they hear that first part, and they're thinking, oh, this sounds great. We're about to be delivered. right? And so that is the point of this. He's saying, I have come, and, and, and I have the Spirit of the Lord. So this would be the Holy Spirit, which in the Old Testament was evidence that someone was a servant of the Lord, whether it was a prophet, a priest, and most often a king. The term anointing is most used for those who would be king, but also was often used for those who were set apart for priests. So he's saying that the Holy Spirit on him is the anointing, is the evidence, is his set-apartness for this purpose. Now notice why Jesus comes. And see if you don't maybe hear yourself in here somewhere I want to read it again because I think the words are really important. That you don't maybe hear some of where your heart either presently is or your life circumstance is or where you have been. He says, I've come to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now, the poor there, if we use the Sermon on the Mount, more than likely is the poor in spirit, not just the materially poor. Those who were just suffering from the fact that um, that they, they just had no hope. They had lost hope, if you will. They were impoverished in, in their ability to see that God is good, that God still loved them. They had been in exile. They, they've gone through an awful lot. Now, it's their sin that got them there, right? But still, when you're the next generation paying for the sins of the Father, it gets old, doesn't it? And so, here the poor in spirit, he's come to preach good news to him. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted. That would describe a whole bunch of us in varying ways. I have felt the weight of that this week. Um, I'm not sure it happens from time to time, but, but for those who don't know, uh, my mother overdosed uh, uh, some years ago. And there's a picture of her in our family pictures, and she's so young and she's so beautiful. And for some reason, as I was passing by that picture, I just stopped and, and just wept. I'm brokenhearted. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and my grandfather's also in that picture, and he, he also led a very sinful life and cost our family an awful lot. Uh, and I'm the third person in the picture. And so um, it's an interesting thing to think about. What, were, what was being thought of at the time that picture was taken? And how little did we know the sorrow that was coming? because of the choices that would be made by at least two of the people in that picture. And so he comes to help bind up that brokenheartedness. If you're a parent, you know brokenheartedness in so many ways. If you're a husband or a wife, you know brokenheartedness. If you are single, if you live, if you breathe, if you have a heart and a brain, you know brokenheartedness. And here, this anointed servant has come to bind that up to not let it stay in pieces, and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Notice how the New Testament speaks of sin as slavery. 
True slavery. That, and, and those of us who are admitted addicts of any and every kind, we understand this all too well. If we are willing to, step one, admit we have a problem. And we all do, by the way. It's just whether or not we admit to what it is. So we all know what it's like to feel trapped, to feel like that this thing is gravity, that we, we don't have a lot of choice. And so to those who experience that, both spiritually and physically, he is coming to unlock the prison doors and set you free. Amen? And so, from there, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, this is an interesting pairing because the year of the Lord's favor, for those of you who know anything about the Old Testament, would have been called Jubilee. Now, if you know anything about Jubilee, that's when all debts are rendered null. They're not paid they're just done away with. And everything that has been taken from is restored to. So that no one would generationally have to experience suffering. Do you know how many times that Israel actually practiced the art of Jubilee? If you said not one time, you're correct. Not one time. It was all concept, biblical, until Jesus comes. And the true jubilee has been declared. The debts that we owe in terms of our sin have been rendered null, paid for by him in full. And the, everything that's been taken from us that matters restored our hearts, our minds, our souls, access to the throne of grace anytime we need it. Amen. But there's also this thing called the day of vengeance, which is part of, in, in, in a other half of Jubilee, there, there must be a reckoning. There is justice, after all. There's not that grace is so free that it's cheap, no. It was quite costly to Christ himself. This anointed servant has already tasted of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Remember, it is by what that we are healed? His stripes. It is his crushing that leads to our rising. It is his suffering, his sorrow that allows us to step out into the light and be truly comforted as the people of God, resurrected and restored. And notice why Jubilee and vengeance come? To comfort all who mourn. All who look at this world and recognize, no, this is not the way it is supposed to be. For all of us who feel helpless in being able to do anything that matters. I remember the moment as a parent where I felt the most helpless. It was when my daughter was going out the front door to go to school and I suddenly realized, am I insane? I am letting my child go to a place Ruled by adults, I don't even know. Some of you homeschoolers are like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Touche. One for the homeschoolers, zero for Caesar's palace. I get it. I, I get it. And in that moment, if, 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 if I'd have been smart, maybe I would have done that, right? But I, I felt it because I realized how, how much sovereignty I lacked. And even if I'd homeschooled them, guess what I couldn't have changed at all? Their heart. We're fallen from within, not from without. The without is just the manifestation of and the added to. We're broken from within. And so for all of us who recognize this is not the way it's supposed to be, that there is something that's better than this, Death is not what it's supposed to be. Divorce is not the way it is supposed to go. Our children taking the routes that they take is not the way it's supposed to be. All that goes on, all the brokenness, we ought mourn. And so there's comfort coming for those who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, remember, that's just the dwelling place of God. That is where God resides with his people and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Now, in their culture, when you mourn, you pour ashes on your head so that people can see what condition your heart is in. We, uh, in our culture, don't do that so much. We, we hide a lot of what we feel. 
right? We are not as expressive as a culture as many other cultures, as, as particularly within uh, probably, uh, it's probably even a class issue in some measure, middle class, upper class, we don't show our emotions a lot. But it's also a cultural line. Uh, white folks just don't show their emotions a whole lot. I'm numbered among you. And so, so they would have been given this headdress so that everybody could see, no doubt, Jubilee had come. The anointed servant was reigning and things were changing. He says, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. What a great thing it would be that we would have that garment. Remember the garment promised to us in Isaiah 52 that they sang of, that it was already laid out for us. It's already purchased. It's taken care of. All you have to do is rise from the dust of death, put that garment on, and sit at the king's table because you have been welcomed the power of the resurrection. And so this anointed servant is coming to grant all these things, and it says that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This idea of a firmly planted tree is all throughout Scripture. Psalm 1 speaks of us as oaks of righteousness in some measure. There's other places where it speaks of us being firmly planted and rooted. This is a common image and what it, what it means is that we are not easily swayed. We are not easily blown over with the wind of every doctrine. And it goes on to say that all of this, all of this is so that the Lord may be glorified. Now here's, here's what's so good about our God. He is glorified when we, his people, are reconciled, resurrected, and restored. He is not glorified when we are perishing, when we are returning like dogs to our own vomit, when we, in some measure, don't display his glory. That doesn't glorify him. He takes no, and remember this, if, if this is the first time you've ever heard this, look this up to make sure I'm telling you it's true. Ezekiel 18 very clearly states, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, none. So Spurgeon says, you should never, ever speak of hell without tears in your eyes. We are not the ones who are to dance at people's funerals because they were wicked and perished. We are the ones who ought mourn until the anointed servant says, put this headdress on. And so all of this is to glorify God. And then... It says these glorious words, we've been invited into this work. It is not that we are redeemed so that we sit on the sidelines and wait for the return of God, uninvolved, uninterested in the lives of our neighbors and coworkers and family and friends. We are to actually do something. Listen to what it says. Build up the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations, repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Are you aware of what's going on in the people's lives around you? Do you actually care how they're suffering and the things that they're going through? Do you have any idea at all? Because everybody, everybody hurts at some point. And could use a friend. And we fail at this a lot of times, but so much of it is because we just don't want to get involved. We, we have enough going on as it is in our own lives, which is a failure to understand the beauty and the power of the gospel to redeem and to make you into something, an ambassador of reconciliation. Your, your redemption is not just for you alone. And God is much more glorified when we join him in that work. Will it be messy? Yes. Why? We have no idea what we're doing. And yet he loves us so much as our father, he will let us as children come in and handle things of eternity, handle holy things. Do you have any idea how ridiculous it is? And this is rhetorical. I don't want you to answer this out loud. And you'll know why I said that in just a moment. Do you have any idea how ridiculous it is that the Lord, your God, lets me handle this word in front of you. And let me say this. It is far more ridiculous than you could ever know. And in the same way, 
that the Lord our God would gather us together to try to in some way shape or form worship in a space like this, on a day like this, in a city like this, under the circumstances in which we all came in. How ridiculous is our God? He's ridiculously loving and he's ridiculously good. Almost to the point of seeming reckless at times. But he's not. He's not. And so, we are called to join in this work, to come alongside as redeemed people and be architects and ambassadors of reconciliation and think about how that changes things. So the first move is not to step in and tell everybody where they're wrong. The first move is to step in and find out where they're hurting. And so would that we would be those kind of people who have been redeemed. Listen to what John Oswald, Old Testament scholar, says of this passage. He says, in this chapter, we are introduced once again to the means whereby God's people will be enabled to live righteous lives. I want to pause there for just a second because I think when we hear righteous, right, we hear like obedient, keeping the law people. So uh, there's a way in which we could like think, all right, so the best way for me to keep the law, to not steal, not lust, not doing that stuff, let me move to like a, a thousand acre ranch in Montana where you can't see another person for like 15 years. That would be righteous. No, actually it wouldn't. See, righteous lives are not about the negative things or the things we don't do. But it's about how the things we don't do create space for us to actually do something that is transformative. When you are not tangled up in coveting what your neighbor has, you can actually love and appreciate and enjoy them and pray for them and know what they're going through and be of some assistance to them. It's space in which God can work. But too often when we hear the word righteous, we make it all about us Instead of us before a watching world, us as ambassadors of reconciliation, truly righteous lives change things. So he's saying here that the means by which we are enabled to live these righteous lives, which will in turn draw the nations to God. Remember, that is the purpose. It's been the purpose of the whole story is redemption and reconciliation. It is not for us, like I said, to retreat and live in holy huddles and live on holier hills so that we don't get bothered. He says the means is the anointed one, the Messiah. So it is Christ that enables us to live lives, to be participants in the changing of a world that seems at times, if you read much at all, to have gone completely mad in spots. So what are some ways, and this is for you to think about, and it's not arrogant for you to answer this question. Don't give me this false humility of, well, I can't really identify all the good I'm doing. I mean... <laughs> It would take all day, number one. Uh, no. Uh, what are some ways in which you are living out the power of the resurrection between the now and the not yet? Because if you can't answer this question, I, I, in all seriousness, and I'm talking to Christians right now. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, this is not aimed at you. I'm talking to Christians. If you can't identify some way in which you are living out the resurrection that is affecting the world in some way, you need to be concerned. You need to be worried. Now, let me say that too often I think we have way too aggrandized a view of what that means. Remember what we said a few weeks ago about how in Revelation 19 that the bride of Christ is going to be clothed in the righteousness of the saints and, and how that's probably going to go is we'll be sitting there going, wait a minute, that made it? God, you, you thought that would make her beautiful? That that I did that was so meaningless, it seemed. So too often, I think, we, we have an over-aggrandized view and don't appreciate all the quotidian or daily ways in which we are living out the beauty and the power of the resurrection. That sometimes, and I've said this before, sometimes the most righteous act you will do this day is that you showed up. You made it here. Sometimes it may be that you took at the table one more time, even though you just weren't real sure. 
sometimes that you uttered a prayer that was this long. Help. Now, I'm not saying you want to reside there, and I'm not saying you want to build the entire edifice out of that, but what I am saying is that the resurrection permeates far more than we've given it credit for. Maybe part of our problem is we've not thought long enough and hard enough and looked close enough at the scripture as to what the resurrection means. We think it's far more aggrandized and glorious because that's just who we are. We think it ought to be obvious and not long and ongoing. Some things I've seen take 10 years. And in the scheme of things, that's really not that long. But when I said that, most of you groaned in your spirit. But that's who we are. And so, how are you living some of these things out? And then what are some specific ways in which you are serving God's kingdom as an architect and ambassador of reconciliation? What are you building up that's been torn down? What are you helping somebody to see that's been taken away? What are you putting back that was stolen by someone in some way, shape, or form, whether that's hope or love or joy or peace? kindness, any of those things, what are you participating in? Let me just say that parenting is part of that. Marriage is part of that, right? So don't think that you got to go home and be like, hey, kids, I love you, but, you know, daddy's got to do some resurrection type stuff, and and I'm just not going to be able to be around as much. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that to you moms either. I'm not saying that to any of you. In fact, the better way is to figure out how you can leverage what you already have, because chances are, like my diet and exercise plan, it will be abstract and unpracticed. Unless my diet plan's eating chicken wings. I'm killing that, by the way. <clears throat> and so we need to be thinking about these things, because this is what we were saved for and unto. Stuff we need to talk about. Now, let's turn back to the text and see the Lord is going to speak here. Now, the first few verses is the anointed servant's voice is beginning to change out to give way to the Lord's voice. And I think that's intentional because the anointed servant is, after all, Jesus, the God-man. So if you would hear what he has to say further. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed." Now, there's a lot going on in this passage that you've got to pay close attention to because if you just read it off the top, you may think, wow, that, I mean, so basically slavery is just going to flip. That Israel is going to take over and the, the world is now going to have to tend their fields and, and give them their stuff, right? It's just, it's just you know, which, which way has the wheel turned to put who on top? That would be a very wrong reading of this, actually. Let me make the argument based on uh, the the objects of each of these and from Luke chapter 4. I want to tell you the rest of that story. So after the people praised Jesus for standing up and saying, hey, I'm fulfilling Isaiah 61 in your midst, what they didn't recognize was this part. See, they thought what he was saying is, you're going to come and we're going to take over and we're going to set things right for us. We're going to make them pay. Interesting, Jesus goes on to say to him, he says, well, here's the problem. You're going to tell me this proverb about how a prophet is not received in his own hometown. They say, well, hold on a second, man, what you talking about? That's my translation, by the way. And Jesus responds by telling them two stories that they would have known. He tells them about the widow at Zarephath, who was, by the way, a Canaanite. Now, that's important, isn't it? That she, when there was this famine in the land, she was taken care of specifically by the prophet of God. 
And then he tells them the story of Naaman the Syrian, Syrian being important, about how he was one of the few lepers that was willing to be obedient. If you know the story, he was obedient through clenched teeth to be healed. Well, now, those are interesting stories if you know anything about race relations between Jews, Canaanites, and Syrians. See, what he was saying is, you guys have it wrong. I have not come to set things right in the way that you think. They will not pay. They too will be blessed. The whole point of this is to reach the nations, to bless all who are of Abraham, the fount of all humanity, right? Remember, the Abrahamic covenant is that nations would be blessed, those who certainly bless the people of God, and that those who would be cursed are those who reject or work against the, the ways of God to save his people. And so, if you know anything about Luke chapter 4, the Jews get really angry and they try to kill Jesus because who is he to talk about God blessing Canaanites, widows, women nonetheless, and Syrian uh, military leaders? So they try to kill him, and Jesus does this really cool kind of thing where he just passes through the people and they don't get to throw him off the cliff like they'd planned to. So we would be remiss if we were to read this and not hear what he's saying. So remember what he had just said, the anointed servant's coming so that God would be glorified, so that we, in the power of the resurrection, would become architects and ambassadors of reconciliation. Now let's pay attention to the text, making note of who is the you and who is the they. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. Now that's interesting. But this is what qualifies, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. So what he's saying is when my kingdom gets ushered in, you will not be tyrannical kings, oppressors. You actually will be the priests that I created you to be. A people of justice and blessing, grace and mercy, a people of redemption. You will rule not with the iron fist, but with equity and justice and grace and peace. You will show them what it was supposed to look like when I created this world. You, at long last, will be the priesthood of all nations. And so, even though these folks will have work to do, and there's, it's good work. Notice, it's not bad work. What are vine dress, dressers making? Wine. Wine for what? The meal that's coming. And so he says, you'll be priests, you'll rule in a different way. And he says, they shall speak of you as ministers of God. So they being those who are being ruled over by the priests of God. Notice what they say about them. These folks are ministers of God. Which is actually a good thing in that culture, not an epithet like it oftentimes is with us today. And so it says, you shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, you're going to be restored. I'm going to bless you with a double portion, which has been promised throughout all the Old Testament. But notice what it says they're going to do. Those foreigners and strangers, what are they going to do? They're actually going to rejoice in the conditions in which they live. Now, did Israel rejoice in exile and suffering? No. But under this new kingdom, this kingdom of God, no matter who you are and what your job is, you will be blessed. This is evidence of the new heavens and the new earth. And notice what it goes on to say. It says, Instead of your shame, there'll be a double portion of dishonor. They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. That's interesting. Now, if Israel's getting a double portion, and, and the strangers and foreigners are getting a double portion, was that communism? No. No, this is the lavishness of God. This is the goodness of the Lord our God to ensure that no matter who you are, you have access to him in Christ. He is the double cure. He is the double portion. 
So no one is left out based on where they're born, what their family has done or not done, what's been, been decided before anything could be decided. It is that they, they and you have an opportunity to come before the Lord your God boldly to receive what you need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. So they also get a double portion. It says, therefore, in their land, they'll possess a double portion. They shall, listen, they shall have everlasting joy. How many governments that have ruled throughout history, I don't care what country you pick, can boast that their people will have everlasting joy? All of them, including all the surrounding nations. Only this kingdom, only this king, only we as ambassadors and architects of reconciliation participating in this. It says, for the Lord loves justice and he hates robbery. And that word wrong, it's an interesting word in Hebrew that, that really probably means wrong with an offering. And what he's saying there is, don't, in fact, Jesus picks up on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Leave what you have to offer on the altar and go make it right with your brother. And then come back and make your offering. Why? Because God's a God of reconciliation. God would rather us be reconciled, interestingly, than to look good in our worship. God would rather us to be at peace with one another than to act as if it doesn't matter to him and he's more concerned with do we sing songs in the right style. And so what he's saying here is he didn't take any pleasure in wicked worship. And he goes on. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. He's already made one with you, Israel. People of God, and now he's saying them, the Gentiles, if you will. It goes on, their, their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them acknowledge them that they are an offspring in the Lord and blessed. If we don't understand the resurrection is a missional reality. If we, in fact, I want to offer you a new term. I get that many of you get nervous with the term social justice. And I think it's a bad term because the emphasis is on the social piece, right? I think we ought to be able to coin a, a, a better phrase, which is missional justice. Justice that offers true redemption, everlasting covenant with the Lord our God. It's not divorced from the physical, right? True justice can't leave people hungry. It can't leave people without adequate water, education, and other opportunities. It just can't. It must be physical, but it also can't leave them without Jesus. It also can't leave them without access to the new heavens and the new earth, the true kingdom of God, where all things will be made right. And so it's critical that we recognize that Christ came not just for the spiritual, but also for the physical. Otherwise, the resurrection is meaningless. Why resurrect physically if the physical doesn't matter? So, what God is saying here is you've been saved for a purpose to join me in the work of the greater redemption that I am bringing into this whole world, every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, if you would uh, hear what Barry Webb says about this, he says, grace rests on atonement as its foundation. It's free, but not cheap. That is why Isaiah can move so naturally from grace in verse 7 to justice in verse 8. There is ultimately no conflict between them. True justice, true justice opens the doors for everyone to come in and be able to worship the Lord their God, not in the way they decide, but to be taught, discipled, and reared in the way that he has called to be worshiped. And so what are some ways in which you have experienced both the grace and the justice of God? If you're a Christian, this is easy. You experienced it in Jesus. The fullness of God's justice fell on the totality of your sin in him. That's why grace is not cheap. 
You've also experienced this if you actually have been exposed in your sin. If you've ever gotten caught at anything, this includes children on up, it was actually God's mercy and grace to keep you from going farther and deeper and darker than you would have ever, ever known. There's a severe mercy in your sin finding you out and you having opportunity to be reconciled, amen? As one who's been caught more than I've gotten away with. This is true. Now, if you would turn back to the text and let's hear the last voice. This is actually the people in Isaiah responding to the anointed servant who has come to set up the kingdom of justice and grace. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So here, Isaiah, on behalf of the people, responds and says, this is worthy of celebration. This is worthy of, and why I put on the tie one good Sunday out of any given year, right? It's worthy of us getting a little fancy for a second. It is worthy of us inviting people in to bear witness, even though they may not understand some of the language or some of the stories or some of how we do or why we do. But to see, wait a minute, this, this is a community of people who love each other and will love those around them, who care genuinely about how you're doing, who will take time to pray with you and to hear you out and to break bread with you and to love you even though you, like them, are imperfect. And so what he's saying is, we're, we're getting dressed up for something. But notice how he uses this, this gardening image that speaks of resurrection. And it actually calls to mind a passage from John where it says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, nothing new can come from it, basically. So this resurrection language is that, that something falls to the earth and sprouts and rises up and remember, what he's saying here is that the reason that we have been resurrected is so that the nations could see who we are and who our God is and what difference does it make. That's why you hear us using that terminology for the life of the world, which comes from John. We didn't make that up. So what we do, we ought to do for the life of the world. And what's, what's really beautiful about this is this is not just the marriage supper of the Lamb that's being called to mind. It is actually every worship service throughout history. Do you understand that when we gather together on Sundays to do this, we're taking a practice run? That's why it's important for you to be here. I don't want you to show up unpracticed. I don't know where that means he'll put you in the bells row, right? Like where you'll have to stand. We ought to recognize that this is not arbitrary, that there is something that takes place here, not because of me, not because of my preparation or lack thereof, not because of my righteousness or certainly lack thereof, but because of our having gathered together to do it. And the opportunities that are presented by us coming this close to one another. And so, it's not that Easter alone is about the resurrection. No, every Sunday is. You may be thinking, so you're going to wear a tie every Sunday? No, it won't be special and you won't have anything to talk about next year. And so we recognize that, that death has been swallowed up by life. That we have been given this great gift of Christ who dwells in us in the spirit. God who resides, who is turning us into a dwelling for his people. That we, we do that so that others would come to know so that we would bear fruit, so that people's lives would actually be transformed and changed for the good, so that they too could join us with their gifts as ambassadors and architects of reconciliation. 
Listen to what Jeffrey W. Grogan says about this. He says, God's faithful word will secure the growth of righteousness and praise in his people. And if it's God's word that does that, that's why we have so much of the word in our service. Rather, you have more of that than other stuff. That's why it's important for us to gather together around the word of God and to grow together and to go through books of the Bible together and to go through topics that matter to the things that are just. And so we do this to grow in righteousness and praise in his people, which will be publicly displayed as at a bridal feast before all nations. So, how does your hopeful longing in the resurrection affect your worship between the now and the not yet? I get it, it's not always exciting. You know, I was, we, we were in uh, Nature's Market on Friday, and this David Gray song was playing. It's the one where he says, every time I look at you, I feel lightning run through my veins. I looked at Susan. <laughs> uh, I didn't get it that time. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> Something's wrong, right? Because David Gray said, every time I look at you, lightning runs through my veins. And what if that was our, what, all we thought love was? What does that mean when there's no lightning? Does it mean I don't love you anymore? Does it mean God doesn't love us anymore when there's no fire on the altar? Does it mean that because my, the hair on the back of my neck didn't stand up during that death was arrested song that we're going to sing at the end, does that mean that God has forsaken us? He's departed from this place? No, that's not what that God promised. He's unchanging. His word is true. We gather because we need to hear it again. We need to hear it afresh. We need to hear it in the same old way. So that, that longing would help draw other people in. Now this last question is kind of hard. This is for my regular church folk. If you're visiting this morning, you don't have to bother with this question. But maybe you can turn around and tell these people the answer. What would your family, your friends, coworkers, and neighbors learn about the good news if all they had was your worship? What would they learn about your God, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, if all they had was your life? And you may say, well, that's a crown of thorns. No, not in Christ. It's not, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. Your better bets be honest and truthful about the gospel. Let them see the mess as well. One of the best things we ever did was let people be in our home even when we were disciplining our children. Even when things weren't going well, our home was always open. And people always spoke to, and they always pointed to the times I felt like we'd messed up the worst. To those times being the things that displayed the gospel the most beautifully to them because we were willing to say we were sorry and seek forgiveness. So what do we learn from Isaiah 61, 1 through 11? It teaches us uh, at least these three things, that Jesus is the anointed servant who brings the good news of the resurrection and invites us to be ambassadors and architects of reconciliation. It also teaches us that God is gracious and just, keeping his redemptive promises to his people so that a just and gracious kingdom could be set up. And last, we should celebrate and worship in the power of the resurrection for the life of the world every day chance we get, but certainly every time Sunday rolls around.